Welcome to the Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose podcast. This podcast showcases inspiring appraisers and professionals from the industry who are leaders in their field. How did they get to where they are? What have they learned along the way? And what do they do now for their teams, their clients, and the industry? Your host is real estate investor, entrepreneur, and appraiser, Michael Hobbs. Well, welcome back, and thanks again for joining us. We're excited in this week's installment to have Tamaniza with us. It is always a pleasure to connect with a peer who has just a broad range of experience in and around the industry, as it provides a whole different perspective for so many who either are not in the industry or have been in just one particular segment of the industry. So with that, Tom, welcome. Thanks for having me, Michael. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. Maybe it's springtime showing up in this part of the country. So uh, you and I happen to be practically neighbors. So I hope there's sunshine flying in your window as well as mine. Yeah. Nice day today. Nice day. Nice day. Hopefully that brings up uh, all that activity out there and brings down interest rates and things start moving a little faster than they had been in the past. Yeah. I think you, myself, and everybody else in our our space is hoping the same thing. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, Tom, we always like to start out with a, just just a, a fascinating question is, so were you born this way or did you find your way into the industry? I guess one hand I was born into it, but didn't want to be born into it. Now, my, uh, I'm actually a third generation appraiser. My grandfather was an appraiser. My dad was an appraiser. My uncle have tons of family and relatives who are appraisers, and I never wanted to be an appraiser. <laughs> but reluctantly, my dad dragged me when I was junior in high school in 1977 and said, hey, come to this appraisal class with me. And I still remember it. It was uh, at the Hillside Holiday Inn, and it was a class being given by uh, Fannie Mae. I still remember the director's name who ran the Chicago area, and they were given a class, Estimate and Contributory Value for REO Properties. Oh, it was interesting. I was, you know, always 17 and all the other appraisers in there were a lot older in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. And so they were all kind of looking at my dad, why'd you bring this kid here to the class? <laughs> so long story short, uh, I still have the piece of paper. I wrote down this formula that they were teaching because Fannie Mae was getting tired of seeing appraisers making condition adjustments on their REO properties based off of the actual dollar amount without estimating the contributory uh, value. So I have it, still have it, and you know, over the years, it's become very useful. I was actually, at that time, as soon as I graduated high school, I went into computers, so I worked down at the Board of Trade. Oh, wow. And I was computer analyst, and so that's what I was doing, and I really enjoyed doing that and had no desire to be an appraiser. You're not the first person who's been around the family experience, Tom, and had some of that, like, I don't really want to do that. But somehow you got into the industry. What happened? As Bugs Bernie would say, did you take a wrong turn at Albuquerque? Well, you know, back as soon as I started driving, so when I was 16, even though I didn't want to be an appraiser, my dad was subconsciously grooming me to be an appraiser. Every Saturday morning, he'd have a list of uh, properties, residential, commercial, industrial, and he'd say, all right, I want you to drive to all these properties, take a front, rear, street scene, all sides, any repairs, pictures of repairs. Give me, write me a paragraph of what do you see, what's in front of the building, what's around it, what's the neighborhood look like, 
and then I need you to measure all the commercial and industrial properties because back then they didn't really give square footage with the data sources that they had back at the time. And my dad would pay me $5 for a residential property and $10 for an industrial or commercial. So I think you're 16, 17, 18 years old on a Saturday. Your dad gives you a list of 30 properties. Yeah. That's two to $300 every Saturday that you make. That's high-end money for a teenager, you know? Yes. So started doing that, and then um, I was working in computers, and my dad called me up one year, and he says, how much money do you make? And I says, I make uh, $24,000. He says, oh, that's too much money. I could pay you like 21000 Why don't you cut work for me now? And I'm like, <laughs> that's all right, Dad. So about six months later, he calls me back. He says, how much money do you make now? I said, I think 26000 a couple more thousand than what I just said. And he says, well, I could pay you $24,000. i am like, no, no thanks. And so this went on for about a year and a half. Finally, my dad calls me up and he says, how much money do you make? And I said, uh, $34,000. And he says, well, I can only pay you 30000 And so he was really mad at me. And it was just happened to me coincidentally about a month or two later. I just got passed over for a data center manager for where I worked. It was in 1986, and I was only 26 years old. And the VP of ops calls me in his office and says, I'm sorry, Tom, we're going to have to pass you up. You know, you don't have a college degree, and you're only 26 years old. And I'm like, what does that matter? You don't have to have a college degree to do this job. I've been here six years. I know exactly how to run that data center. But you're saying I didn't get the job. Well, I'm going to give you my two weeks notice. And he says, your two weeks notice? And I said, yeah, you made my decision real easy for me. (laughs) My dad's been trying to get me to become an appraiser for the last few years. And I really like my job here. And I keep telling him no. So I'm going to give you my two weeks notice. And I'm going to be an appraiser. And he says, well... If someone gave you another offer, he's thinking that I'm kind of bullshitting him, that I'm not having to be in the grades. He's like, if, well, some other company offered you an ops support role, I'll match it. I says, no, I'm officially retiring. And he says, retiring? Because I'm retiring from this industry. Oh, I'm going to become a real estate appraiser. So I, that was a really good, great exit interview with that person. <laughs> I left there. I call my dad up and I'm like, well, I just quit my job. And he's like, well, how much money do you make? And I told him 34, 36 dollars. He says, well, you're lucky. I just got in a new client and I can pay you that. Is it, you know what his new client was? No, I do not. This goes back there. You have to be around for a long time for, so even some of the listeners here, but it was one of the very first appraisal management companies. It was lenders service out of the pitch area. So I started working with my dad June of 86, and that was a big account for us. The rest kind of career paths kind of moves on from there. That's amazing, Tom. I mean, there's not many people at that ripe age of their middle 20s get to retire, and, and you did. I mean, but you didn't stay retired for very long. Like you said, you moved from one industry in the computer science space over to the other, which was joining your dad in the family firm. What was it like working in a family appraisal firm? Well, you know, my dad and his secretary, you know, they were been together for over 20, 25 years. 
in 86, they still had files of the old Green Hornet form around, and they were, you know, the earliest versions of the 1004 form was out, but they were doing a lot of this stuff with carbon paper and old IBM typewriter, and I just came from um, computers, and I'm like, what are you guys doing here? We got, we have oh to get, uh, we need to get a computer, and my dad was so reluctant, and long story short, because of my computer background, sure. in less than a two-year period, I had the entire office automated with Zenith XT and AT computers on a server that was trying to emulate an OS environment just using connections in the office, working through DOS. So that's what we were doing. And uh, we had about uh, in 88 or or 89, we had like 13 or 14 full-time appraisers all working wow. on, on computers. You know, from there to like 1991, 92, we got FHA review contract, which was really sweet. That helped us, well, helped me really grow the family operation at that time. That's amazing. Used to go down to Annie Mae office downtown Chicago and pick up a couple hundred FHA appraisals every month. And I'd divvy them out to my appraisers and we would do the reviews. Well, I'd review them all. And then we would drop them back off at the end of the month. So we had like a almost a full month to do a couple hundred of them and we drop them back off. That was a great gig. That is indeed a great gig. Now, you touched on one thing that many people in the industry are familiar with, but there's a lot of people that are not. And you mentioned the Green Hornet. You want to take a moment or two and just kind of, for those that maybe uh, had joined the profession maybe in the last decade or two decades, maybe even three for that matter, don't know what you're talking about. Well, the Green Hornet used to be a one-page appraisal form that really that had everything on it. It had basically a cost approach section, a neighborhood section. It was it came out in the six in the sixties. That was the primarily form that residential appraisals were were done on it basically had like four or five sections of it well i think it was i know 10 or 11 12 sections counting the first page in the back page okay so imagine today you're doing your 1004 and you got your sketch and you got your pictures and you have your addendums and you got your certifications and limiting conditions. Think how it would be if you just did had a two-page form and you stuck a Polaroid picture of the front of the house on it. That's it. <laughs> and so anyway, they eventually got rid of that, you know, in the 70s. I think it was. I'm not sure exactly when they eliminated that form. Yeah, I get it. But the point being is at a very, very early intersection of maybe people might be thinking more of a Flintstones type of use of a form and carbon copies. You come in like the Jetsons and put together some Zenith machines and create and simulate an operating system and connected workstations for efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah, and you know, you know who knew a lot about who could talk about the Green Hornet form is George Opalka. George Opalka. You know, George originally hailed from the Chicagoland area, and his dad was an appraiser. Now, George wasn't really an appraiser, but George and his family, they started out the SREA books. They were red books that appraisers because we couldn't get the MOS data because we weren't realtors. So appraisers had to start their own comp database, and it was these red books called the SREA books. And George used to come in 
George and his dad would come in hit into our our office, Manizzo Real Estate and Appraisal on 31st in Chicago. Introduced George's dad got introduced to my dad, and then vice versa. And me and George, we were both the young kids working for our dads. <laughs> sure. And he went the technology side. I stayed on the appraisal side. And to this day, me and George, you know, we've had a 40 year plus. Wow. Wow. Might even be longer than 40 years. Yeah, it's longer. 45 year relationship that all started as a result of our founding, our fathers and how we uh, got connected together. And so if you were an appraisal company, you would take the front sheet of all of your appraisal reports and then you would send them over to George in S in the red books. And then by city and zip code, they would put list in your properties that you appraised with all the other appraisers in the area. And that's how we got our comps back then. That is absolutely phenomenal. And thank you for a bit of the history. I actually have heard a good bit of it in conversations with George over the years, as well as others. And it's quite a telling tale. And I hope at some point in the future, we get to hear a little bit more about it. But so here you go, you you network and, and connect an office of, of appraisers and you're doing review work. How did things continue to grow from there, uh, from the late 80s going into the 90s for you guys? Well, the 90s, 90s were real well, because now we grew our staff. We had about 30 staff appraisers. You know, one of the challenges that we had, like all growing firms, is, you know, learning what the client expectations are okay. and how to uh, deal with them. And, you know, everybody, anytime you work with an appraisal management company, you get revision requests. No, and you had those back then, too? My goodness. Yeah, so that's the dreaded word. I'm telling you, I see the same revision requests now in 2020s that I saw in the 1980s and the 1990s. Oh, There's like this magical checklist that has never been uh, sunset, and everybody yep. uses them, and it's been passed down from generations and generations, and now everybody has some variation of it. So one of the things that I did for the firm was uh, I went to the Mortgage Brokers Trade Show, and that's where everybody would have that's where title companies and lenders and banks and home inspectors and mortgage brokers, everybody would go there. And I was the first appraisal firm to ever rent a booth. The response was every broker, every person come up, I'm tired of these lowball appraisals. I'm tired of this. So it introduced us to a lot of folks and we were able to really grow the business. One of the booths that was by me was uh, private mortgage insurance, PMI. And that was the group where they trained underwriters. So I asked the gal, I said, how do you become an underwriter? She says, well, you have to take these classes. Uh, our company gives them. And I'm like, didn't you send me the information? So I got the information and I actually signed up to take underwriting classes. So I took uh, basically underwriting 101 and 102 and advanced underwriting. Yeah. And when I showed up and it was at night like two or three times a week for like a four or six week program i don't really remember now after everybody introduces himself and what do you do i says i'm an appraiser and they were like you're an appraiser what are you doing in underwriting classes i says i'm tired of getting revisions on our appraisals i want to see what i want to learn what you guys are looking for that was the start of a interesting time period for us because not only myself became an underwriter even though I never underwrote any loans but I sent like five or six of my main appraisers to it and then 
but never forget, we get to the like chapter eight, which is the appraisal section and underwriting class. Yes. And I walk in that day and says, well, guess who's teaching this chapter? Tom, you get to teach. So they, they deferred to me in the appraisal chapter because they wanted to know what appraisers think like and how we write our appraisals. So we did that for a while and uh, we grew the company to the point where in the late 90s, we consistently had a $1.5 million company for a residential firm. Congratulations. We did, did do some commercial, but mostly it was uh, residential and generated some interest. Um, there was a bank who was getting acquired by another bank in the area. They came in and they started pitching me to sell the appraisal company to Oh, them. wow. So after about a year of negotiations in 99, we sold the family appraisal company to Charter One Bank, who just acquired St. Paul Federal in Chicago. And uh, the beauty of it was that I got to go work for the bank and take all the appraisers who work for us. And uh, as staff appraisers with benefits and everything, it was a great thing. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations. That's uh, quite a change, though, as you said, growing the family business and then becoming part of an acquisitive action. And uh, how'd it go working for somebody else? Well, you know why? And it was... Now, my dad never came along. He he kept, but the, the irony part was he had to... Uh, Menizzo Real Estate and Appraisal Company became property of the bank <laughs> in the sale. So he, he, had, he had to create... He had to use his, just his name for an appraisal company. So him and one of the commercial appraisers never came on board, but the rest of us all did. This is when you learn about Graham Bleach Bliley, fair oh, lending wow. and uh, discrimination. And oh, now you're part of a bank and you have to dress this way. This is the company policy for this. And this is how we do, you have to do performance reviews. So it was great experience for me because I learned the inner workings of uh, working at a, lend, uh, a bank and a lending institution. And so I, I liked it. And, that, and what was really neat about it was at a Charter One Bank, their appraisal subsidiary was Reach, oh, okay. uh, Real Estate Appraisal Services. And they had a very good relationship with FNC at the time. And FNC was a growing company and they were one of the primary founders of the collateral management system cms and this is how you could manage appraisal volume if you were a large company or a bank or a lending institution and so uh, i was fortunate to be able to work with them and various reps over at ether company who would come in and we would they'd be developing review rules for 1004s and for the appraisal forms and so i got to work on all of that stuff and learn um, all about the different appraisal technology that was out there so that was really sweet and then AIDC came in and which was going to be the appraisal institute's direct connection on their commercial technology platform so I got to work on that for a couple of years and so it was great experience and it was the best job that I ever had I really enjoyed working for them and then in 2006 a large bank came in, bought, acquired Charter One Bank. They just had a different way of doing business. And to make a long story short, they basically let go the only profitable subsidiary of, uh, of the existing bank and brought in their own people to, to run things. 
I found myself out of a job in 2006. Oof. What an interesting time to be out of a job, 2006. Yeah, no, it was, it was kind of a very depressing time period when I found myself, you know, just laid off of my best job I ever had and not knowing where, what I was going to do. So, and then all of a sudden, um, I got a call in, uh, from an old buddy of mine, actually one of my mentors, Brad Ellis. He used to be from the Chicagoland area, and he relocated out of California, Pasadena area. And he calls me up one day. He says, hey, what are you doing? I says, well, I'm sitting at my makeshift desk in the basement because at that time, my all my kids were at home. So <laughs> now in my room, this is my son's bedroom that I converted to an office. But back in 86, it was a folding table, a computer screen, and a chair in a fax machine, and that was my office and my Love uh, it. my desk. And he calls me up. He says, so what are you doing? I says, well, I'm sitting at my desk. Mainly I've been doing golfing and twiddling my thumbs. He says, how would you like to come work for me? I says, doing what? And he says, investigating fraud on appraisals. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, why don't you come out, fly out here to Pasadena, and let me show you and tell you all about it. So I did that. I went out there. So I took a job with Inimac Bank literally in two months after getting let go from uh, Charter One. That's amazing timing. And it shows the power of relationships as well as, to your credit, you had invested. As Warren Buffett says, the best investment you can make is developing your own skills and competencies because those uh, always can pay dividends. And, and here you were working with Indymac. Did you get to go to Pasadena or did you actually early on pioneer the remote work? Well, it was yes on both of them. So I went out there and I trained for a few weeks in Pasadena. And then I got back. I was able to work remote right here out of the house. It was really neat. That's an amazing experience. There you are in the uh, 2000s working remote with a, what was a, a large presence and one that was growing significantly at that point in time. Yeah, absolutely. This job, you know, opened me up to a whole new other avenue of uh, what forensic reviews were all about and the difference between pre-funding reviews and post-funding reviews and how you work with the REO department, how you work with the chief credit risk officer, how you work with the various committee structure that's within a lending institution. So yeah, I like that job too. <laughs> that's fantastic. And again, because of your broad experience, you've touched on a few things that not everyone may be familiar with. What's the difference with, with between a pre-funding review and a post-funding review? Well, pre-funding is any you get an appraisal and you're looking at it and they haven't closed the loan yet. So you're basically doing a review prior to it going to underwriting. And you're looking for, and then you're asking for revisions to the appraiser, have them correct the revisions. You get the revised report. You give it a thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs up, goes to underwriting, thumbs down. You know, maybe they'll order another appraisal. Maybe it'll go to committee for uh, performance review. Versus post-closing is these were loans that were already closed. And that was that was the main reason that they, for my position. And so any loan that took more than a $250,000 loss got red flagged by various departments in the bank. They wanted to know why did this loan default for X amount of dollars? Was it because the people were qualified 
were they not credit worthy? Was it because of the collateral? If it was part of the collateral, what were the reasons why the loan defaulted? Did we have a bad appraisal or was there actual fraud involved? So I get there, I'm there for a couple of months and then I get a call. Brad says, I'm sending you a group of uh, appraisals in Houston. All these were flagged as high loss loans, possibly fraudulent. So this is what I need you to do. Call this guy up in Houston and maybe he, ha he can help you out with MLS data. So he gives me the guy's name, happens to be uh, Frank Lukoff. And Frank's a pretty popular, well-known, experienced member down in Houston. And I call him up, introduce myself. He's like, sure, come on down. Here's my address. I'll have everything that you need for you. And I wow. walk in his office and he, he had folders on each one of these. Um, high-rise condominium building. He had everything that was there, all the records. Nice Matt showing me where everything was. And that was, you know, when you go to another area that you're not really geographically competent with, it's good oh. that, or you don't have access to the data, it's good that you go, you find a local expert and they put everything together for you. It was amazing. I'd go to these high-rise, I'd pretend that I'm a potential purchaser for one of their units and make an appointment and go in there and say, I want to buy this unit or this unit, whatever I, information I could find out that was in relationship to the units that were used either as a subject or the comparables in the appraisals that, were, that um, defaulted in that sure. project. That was very challenging. You had to keep straight face. You had to pretend like you were uh, someone who had the monetary means to purchase those high-end luxury condominiums. And then I'd, you'd get into the model, and then I'd say, so it says it's uh, 3,000 square feet. And I said, can I see your layout? Can I see your, your sketch? And what you'd find out is a lot of times is they would include the balconies oh, yeah. on the outside. And add in that 400 square foot balcony and say it's 3,000 square foot when the unit only had 2,600. Sure. Or they say that it included two deeded parking spaces, but you could never see the deeds to them. Oh, you, wow. could, you could, they would never show you the parking spaces. They'd, it would tell you they had all these amenities in the building, but they didn't. And you could never look at any of the units. Oof. So get as much information as I can. I'd come back. And then I would do my analysis, send it back to the uh, committee, and then legal at the bank would take it from yeah. there. But I just uh, enjoyed doing that. I mean, there's a lot more from new subdivision um, developer fraud to property flipping fraud to other stuff like that. Absolutely fascinating to get that type of insight. And, and really, for your benefit... I mean, you just become that much better a professional because you've got the exposure, you're connecting all the pieces, you've done underwriter training in the background, you know, to get to that point. And you, once again, you said it sounded like, I think I heard you say that it was something you really enjoyed and sounds like that didn't last forever. That's kind of like the story of my career here. You know, every time I'm going to get in these jobs that I, I really love what I'm doing, something unexpected happens. And so here it was in 2008 only been with doing this for two years all of a sudden any mac bait comes in and um they get shut down by the fdic yeah. for whatever mm -hmm. reasons it was terrible because coming from an appraiser's perspective from a review appraiser perspective 
we had the greatest review program set up at the bank. We had a very high-end, uh, large pre-funding staff appraiser model that reviewed every appraisal. And then we had the whole post-production QC model. We worked well. We had all these uh, policies and procedures in place. And then to find out that the bank you're working for gets shut down by the FDIC, it was very disheartening. But to the best of my recollection, you know, primarily it was it wasn't due to bad appraisals. It was primarily due to, you know, all those goofy loans that they were doing in 2006 yeah. to 2008. Those teaser yep. loans, you know, putting on people that shouldn't have been in there were getting qualified. But I don't know any specifics on that. But no, you, uh, were, you weren't on the origination side. You were on the, in a sense, QC somewhere in the middle or towards the end or after the end of the process. Yeah. So that was the end of that, that great wow. gig. So happened just about at that time, I was national, around that time I was national president for NAIFA, National Association Independent Fee Appraisers, and I was doing a lot of trade shows and manning the booth, trying to recruit members and stuff over there. And I happened to be, I think it was in San Antonio, and it was one of Joan Trice's earlier conference, Val conferences that she had down there, and I'm in the booth. You know, you talk to the other people who run the booths over there. And so I go up and there's a booth for um, IRR um, uh, residential. I'm talking to the guy and we're talking and I'm like, did you just get this job? He says, yeah, I just got hired like like two months ago. <laughs> and I, I said, funny. I says, you must be the guy they hired because I interviewed for that job myself about three or four months ago. <laughs> and he says, no kidding. And so we started laughing. It, that just shows yes. you how small it is, you know, what a small yes. space it is. So we, we exchanged pleasantries. I gave him my card and, and stuff. And, you know, about a month later, I get a phone call from him. He says, hey, you didn't tell me you knew. We used to work for the chief appraiser at Charter One Bank. Uh, I says, well, you never <laughs> asked me, and I never really told you where I used to work. And he says, well... He was the gentleman who who our parent firm, uh, Integra, consulted with to start the residential uh, franchise division for Integra. And I'm like, no kidding. And he's like, yeah. He says, why don't you come down here? We're looking for a chief appraiser. So I flew out to Kansas City. I did get hired. I was hired by the uh, one of the founders of Integra in, uh, in Kansas City and came on board. Now, this was kind of like a semi-remote position because in this one, I'd fly out Monday morning and I'd fly oh, okay. home Thursday night. And so I worked at a desk there, you know, most of the week. And I did that for a while, for a couple of years. And then it started going down to every other week. And then, you know, yeah. a week, a month, and the more that I wasn't able to run things sure. you know, from my end. And so that was, uh, I enjoyed that as well. And That's I've been phenomenal. there ever since. Except our firm has changed multiple times since then to where we're now a curity consolidated. But now I have I haven't had anything to do with the company, you know, from a really a leadership role for a long time. I'm I kind of consider myself the man behind <laughs> the curtain, the old guy behind the curtain, who just kind of the keeper of the history <laughs> since 2008 to 2023. 
Hey, you know, that's important. And, and, that, and really, you've touched on one of the core reasons why we put all this together is because there is individuals like you, that man behind the curtain, that wizard back there, that most people will never get to connect with and the, they may never interact with, but they can at least learn from. And this is at least uh, kind of in a more old-fashioned tradition, a bit of an oral tradition to pass along knowledge and experience and learnings. And that is a fantastic, Tom. So, Tom, I never thought of you as the man behind the curtain, but again, that's a fantastic description of how much you've been involved in, how much you've seen, and how much you've contributed to. Um, given this another great experience that you've had, what's next? Well, I mean, I just finished writing a appraisal class, best practice and most common oh. errors deficiencies, and I'm going to be teaching that April 19th at the ASA a uh, real property conference in Atlantic City. Atlantic City. So for those that are needing some travel, they can go ahead and start planning ahead and pick up some uh, continuing education or just life education along the way. Yeah, excellent. So I remember earlier you were asking about if there's something that you knew way back when that you thought could have been, would be beneficial in sharing. And so I kind of want to go back to a couple things. Yeah, please do. You know, as far as, and also how to, what I know now for opportunities for appraisers. I want to go back and I can't reiterate enough now about why an appraiser wants to join to a professional appraisal organization because what networking is all about and it's how you meet other appraisers. It's how you have good conversations. You learn from one another here. I would not have ever known Brad Ellis. Mm -hmm. I would not have known most of the people in my career, if I wasn't part of an appraisal association. Unfortunately, we've had multiple generations of appraisers now who they've never even taken appraisal class in front of people. It's all been online training. A lot of the appraisers are only taking their mandatory minimum requirements to become licensed or a certified appraiser. But back in the day, and even till this day, it was common practice to show up in person to an appraisal class and walk into an appraisal class with 20, 30, 50, maybe even 100 or 150 other fellow appraisers in there who are all located from your area. Attend a trade show where there could be 500 to 1,000 appraisers from across the country in there or uh, attend local chapter meetings. So many opportunities have presented themselves, potential business, existing business. And so if I had any recommendation, I would strongly encourage folks to join an appraisal association such as the American Society of Appraisers, the Appraisal Institute. If you're into agricultural or farm ranch managers, that's uh, what it's all about for that networking overthink. And even to this day, with almost 40 years experience with myself, you know, I just got done as Chicago chapter president for ASA, just meeting individual appraisers who are business appraisers, machinery and equipment appraisers, art appraisers, personal property appraisers has really opened up my eye. I mean, if I would have known now back then, I would have uh, definitely probably been a business valuation appraiser or a machinery and equipment appraiser. There's a guy, Fernando, who's the current Chicago chapter president of ASA. 
he travels all around the world. Well, in, in light of all that, Tom, if you just kind of take stock of such a broad education, a lot of relationships developed over time through getting involved in associations, we know, is there anything or what thing or many things or anything at all that you may be looking forward to about the future or even be excited about if, if there's something would such exist? You know, I think that right now the, there's a big challenge because of this latest slowdown, the technology changes that are taking place, all this likely new legislation, rules and regulations as it pertains to the lending industry, title, real estate appraisers, racial bias, unconscious bias, discrimination. It just seems right now that the day-to-day appraiser really has challenging times for him. You're going to really have to decide whether or not you want to stick with being a residential appraiser. That's why I was saying earlier, if I would have known now, earlier in my career, I would have probably gone into business valuation or machinery and equipment because you don't have to deal with, you know, all these other in the, all these other issues that are that are taking place right now. But the one thing that you know makes me the most excited is in my current role is getting to help appraisers that you know work for our firm. And then the many appraisers who just call me on a regular or email me on a regular basis and just who I've known and networked over the years and they ask me questions and, you know, they have, how would you handle this? How should I accept this appraisal assignment? Is it, can you help me with this appraisal assignment? And, you know, that's what keeps me going right now. I mean, I had, I, like I said earlier, I just finished writing this best practice uh, revisions class. God, there was so much information to be put together there. I had to step back from it two or three times and then pick back up just so I could get a good flow on the material. But looking back over 40 years and looking into the future here, I'm excited to see what my what Consolidated is doing. And I'm excited to see that there's uh, avenues for appraisers. But if you don't diversify and you don't learn, a different skill set. All you want to do are 1004 refinance appraisals. I think you might as well uh, hang it up and retire because there's. <laughs> I just don't see a future for that too much longer. I think that's a, a great point, Tom. And it, But it highlights an interesting thing. Two things you touched on a little earlier. One was there was a point in time when an older individual brought a younger individual into a group of individuals. And it kind of seems like the roles have changed. Maybe you're that senior individual now has an opportunity to bring a younger individual in and and connect them around. What would you encourage them to focus on upon being either new or maybe recent in the profession to really hone their skills and establish themselves? Yeah, well, you know, uh, you bring up a good point there. I am happy to say that for the first time in uh, 20 years or 25 years, I brought two trainees on. Oh, wow. And I have trained them and who were, both of them have just become licensed appraisers and one has, uh, and they're both ready to upgrade to a certified appraiser. It's very humbling. You know, you have to go back out and here's the ironic part. I'm training them. What am I training them with? I have a rotor wheel to measure the property, <laughs> but I made them uh, get the distos. And so they have the laser cameras. So here's the two new appraisers with the new technology and doing everything on the iPad, right? And here yes. I am with a sheet of paper with my notebook and a rotor wheel. 
Okay. Do I, I love it? Not that I don't want to learn the technology. I know the technology because our company uses it, but you can't, if you're going to be a new appraiser, you have to embrace the technology and that's where it is. And I think you can draw a good analogy there for us appraisers who've been around 30, 40, 50 years. Sure. We're so set in our ways that we can do an appraisal quicker than most people can just using the way that we have been doing it for many years as opposed to forcing ourselves to use the new technology so we can get those reports out in a quicker and a faster manner. So, But, you know, that's what the challenge is, is, you know, we have a, a number of appraisers who are retiring, especially now due to the concurrent state of the industry and the profession, but it's a great opportunity to bring in young appraisers and, and to train them. I can't tell you... With the company I work for, you know, we have lots of appraisers and I help them every day. I get a question about one thing or another. I have to look at all potential applicants when they come in. I look at their samples and see what they're all about. Or I get the phone call from just an individual who wants to become an appraiser and they haven't been able to get anywhere. And they're looking for somebody to train them and mentor them. So you're right. From my father and bringing me in when I was 17 in front of all the older generation appraisers to now, yeah, I am. Uh, it, 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 the roles have uh, um, certainly reversed, and, and that's why it's kind of important to have some folks with our skill set and experience and historical background around to help a groom train, mentor new appraisers or even the appraisers who came in who have never been part of an organization or attended a class in person to help, you know, give them that necessary guidance and leadership. Yeah, that's that's absolutely fantastic. And it's wonderful to see you ascending into that uh, role as you've been really groomed for your whole life. One interesting thing that not many people would get a chance to speak to can talk about, but because you retired early on, uh, you might be the first person we've talked to who has some generational experience and has retired once already, but you also spent time in and around the computer industry and, by your own admission, had, uh, had built some systems before. How do you see the future evolving with so many more young people being technically technology proficient, coding specific? I can't tell the number of times I've been in a conversation with people of certain generations like, oh, yeah. I'm just going to stay up tonight and code that. And they, they literally build, create something into existence. What, what's your outlook on the future because of that ability that exists more naturally in young people in the environment they're coming up with because you actually have some education in that area? That's probably the exciting part because principle change has nothing ever remains static, especially in the <laughs> technology space. And like I said earlier, I was trying to emulate an OS system in with using these to call them uh, Zenus and DOS, AT and sure. XT PCs. And this was really badass back then. Hey, a 20 meg floppy drive, you know, <laughs> not a 20 meg hard drive uh, using a five and a half inch floppy drive on there. You know, me and uh, my buddy, we actually built a box. And this was because I was talking, and he was going to DeVry Tech. He was an electronics guy and a programmer. And I had yep. some programming in me as well. And I says, you know what? I want to work at my appraisals at home 
but we leave the office and we shut off all the computers. How can I access my file that's on this 20 meg hard drive in the office? <laughs> so we built a switch box. And remember the old phone modems where you take the phone and make that noise? <laughs> yeah. Where it would act. And if we left the server on, what would happen is it would actually go in there and on my dumb AT computer monitor at home. I could access my file remotely, pull it up, and work on it. Wow. Man, you and Steve Jobs were like in sync. He just happened to do something called Apple, and you did appraisal. I mean, you're both. You had the APs together. Yeah, but but who knew? Not If I knew now, if I would have stayed with that stuff, I'd probably be a multimillionaire over on that, on the technology, but it was the appraisal side. And so now when you see all the changes and all the young folks coming in, so I could tell you that every place I've ever worked at, there's always been younger individuals who are just so smart with that coding. We'll be in a meeting and uh, we'll be like, well, we would like to do this. Is there any possible way we'll talk to our IT guy or our tech guy? Yeah, sure. Give me a couple of days. And though all of a sudden, next meeting, they have it all done. Wow. And we're, we're testing it out. And it's from analyzing thousands of files and crunching the data that way to writing a better way to disseminate data or distribute it throughout the the company there's sure i mean just look at um luke who started up uh, proxy picks yeah luke tomaszewski he's one of the youngest guys from 20 years ago looked like the teenager who was sitting there at the <laughs> trade shows and he's he's trying to meet and greet everybody and he's a great, he's a good example of the power of networking and meeting people there. And he now has one, this very, very successful company on proxy picks. I haven't talked to him in a few years, but you know, I'm, I'm proud of the guy. I like what, what yep. he's done. That just shows you that when you can network and you have the general knowledge and you want to automate and use technology to change the process, I think that's a great success story right there. I completely agree with you on that one, Tom. And kind of brings us, we kind of bring towards wrapping things up, you know, as we look towards next steps and you're not leaving anytime soon, thank goodness. So people have the benefit of continuing to learn from you and you continue to invest in others, which is such a a wonderful trait and desire. What do you hope still to accomplish before your time comes to exit the industry or the industry exits you? We don't know Mother Nature's timing, but we all have an expiration date. Yeah, we certainly do. My ultimate goal is to ride out the next five to seven years until I actually retire. But what's besides the mentoring and the training right now, I'm looking forward to. I'm, I was just appointed to the Pearl certification committee and so i'm working with rick Hyten, and so i'm getting back involved as it comes to green and lead and pearl certifications for energy efficiencies and how to develop and work with figuring out the contributory value solar panels and high-end improvements on on a property because that's been a great disconnect for a long time and finally industry participants are are all getting on track with that to be part of that group was i'm really looking forward to participating in that and so that's one of the wonderful yeah 
That's that's exciting, Tom. I just uh, want to say thank you again for thoughtfully and reflectively sharing on a near lifelong career in the appraisal industry with the uh, early retirement and the work that you continue to do to support those that are in the industry or coming into it or have recently taken steps to advance their own professional education. So with that, again, we encourage everybody to, you know, look for yourself at what's a possibility. As you heard Tom say, there are many avenues ahead. Technology obviously has a huge intersection with that. Embracing it is a faster pathway towards success than trying to hide out from it. So with that, again, Tom, thank you so much. Anytime. And uh, we look forward to connecting with everybody next week. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pavru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. We hope you enjoyed learning from the amazing life paths and achievements of our guests. Don't forget to like us on LinkedIn and other podcast channels to hear more from appraisers and valuers regarding their life and their work. If you have any suggestions or questions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us a message on LinkedIn and we'll be sure to get back to you. Thanks again for listening. And until we're together again for the next session of Paru Zings, Appraisers on Purpose. Create the change that you seek. 